If you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 18. Father, as we turn to these verses, I ask for your help as we look at them together. Uh, I acknowledge, and I think everybody else will probably acknowledge too, as we read them, that these are some of the most challenging words that Jesus ever spoke. Yet within them is uh, incredible hope, tremendous hope. So help us to understand them rightly. Help us to think well and, and deeply about them. To be fed today and to be encouraged in Christ. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew writes in, in Matthew 18, starting in verse 7, continuing Jesus' uh, conversation with his disciples about greatness in the kingdom. He says, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Nevertheless, woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. It's important anytime we come to the scripture that we understand terms, that we define terms. We typically have an idea of what things mean. But there are three words here in verse 7 that we need a little bit of focus on just to make sure that we're on the same page. The first is the word woe. That's kind of the old woe is me and uh, saying. What does the word woe mean? Well, it's a... It is at the very heart of it, it's a cry of anguish. It's a cry of despair. Here it refers to the suffering that the world will experience under the judgment of God. Woe to the world. It's not just the fact of judgment, but it's the experience of the world under the judgment of God. Uh, that's pretty simple. The word stumbling block is a little bit more involved. A stumbling block. The Greek word is scandalon. We get scandal from that. Uh, it originally meant a trap or a diversion. And here it's being used to talk about something that shifts somebody from the proper course of action. It's used to the Lord Jesus in 1 Corinthians 1.23. We, we preach Christ crucified. Paul says, to Jews, that's a stumbling block. To Jews, the, the idea that their Messiah was crucified is an obstacle. It's a hindrance, and it's one that they can't get over by themselves. So the proper response to Jesus is faith. His crucifixion was a stumbling block to Jews and other religious-minded people. That doesn't make it wrong. What it means is it gets in the way. And what Jesus means here in Matthew 18, 7 has to do with sin. It has to do with temptation. Because of our sin natures, anything can be a stumbling block. 
Even worship can be a stumbling block. I've, I've been a pastor long enough to have seen the worship wars and the way that, that people worship a certain kind of worship. There's a story in Leviticus chapter 10. Uh, Leviticus is all about the priesthood. In the early chapters, Aaron is uh, ordained and consecrated as high priest, and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, are, are ordained as well. And they're described bringing offerings and what, the, what they're going to do. In chapter 9, Aaron brings an offering that God commands. In chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu bring what's called strange fire to God. That doesn't mean that God forbade certain things, but they brought it anyway. They simply brought something God did not command. And the scripture says that fire came from Yahweh and consumed them. See, the, the idea of worship became a temptation to them. We'll make it up. We'll do it our own way. We have a better idea. And they paid a significant cost for that. So even worship can be a cause for sin, not because worship is wrong, but because as sinners we can use anything to sin. The old saying is that when, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh, for my dad, it wasn't a hammer. For my dad, it was a butter knife. If you had a butter knife, then it was a screwdriver, it was a chisel, it was a pry bar, it was anything and everything that you needed. When you're a sinner, everything is an opportunity for sin. Then the, world, the word world, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. Uh, world is used in a variety of ways in scripture. It's used in Romans 1 to talk about the universe. For since the creation of the world, since the creation of the universe, God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen so that people are without excuse. It's used to describe the nature and the culture of the human world. In John 8, 23, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are from below, I am from above, you are from this world. This is your home, this is your place. I am not from this world. What's kind of interesting is if you read commentaries on the Gospel of John and 1 John, there are endless battles over how Jesus uses the word world and John uses it. I think I read one time that there's 20 different uses of the word world in the Gospel of John, which sounds a little extreme to me. I think that they're, they're talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. But it's used in different ways. In Matthew 18.7, it's the world of mankind. See, stumbling blocks don't come from our location, and they don't come from our circumstance. They come from us. They come from within ourselves, and they come from outside of ourselves. So let's think about Matthew 18, 7. In light of these, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come. Nevertheless, woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. Woe to the world. The world is full of temptations to rebel against God's word and against his will. Giving into those temptations means committing acts of sin, committing acts of rebellion that bring about the judgment of God. Our sin nature makes temptation inevitable. It's simply there for us all the time. We're drawn to sin. At the same time, there are people who it seek to entice others to sin. First Peter 4, 3 to 5 says, the time is already the, the time already passed is sufficient for you 
to have worked out, to have lived out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In other words, as Christians, you've had enough of that. You've had all you need. You don't need any more. You can just leave it behind. But then he goes on to talk about unbelievers. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. It's interesting that drunks get really offended when other people won't drink with them. Sinners get really offended that other sinners won't sin. They, they, they want that. Why is that? I, my theory is that because we think there's safety in numbers. The lone impala on the African plain is in trouble. There's lions, there's cheetahs, there's uh, leopards. Oh my. <laughs> well, there's not, there's not tigers or bears, but yeah, there's lions, there's lions, cheetahs, and leopards. Oh my. And, and then there's hyenas and there's wild dogs. So that impala by itself is in trouble. But take that impala and put it in a herd of 1,000 or 10,000, and it's probably going to have a normal lifespan because there's safety in numbers. If you've ever driven in a large urban area, you'll, you'll recognize this. Linda and I were in New York City six or eight years ago. <clears throat> I can tell you this from my own experience. During the weekday, in the middle of the day, when those streets are packed, the police simply are helpless. They, they can't catch red light runners. They can't catch speeders. They can't catch illegal parkers. They can't catch intersection blockers. When you, when you turn two lanes into five lanes, they just can't catch you. And by the way, if you don't drive that way during the middle of the day, you'll either get run over or you'll never move. You have to drive like a complete pagan to get anywhere. But if you do that in the middle of the night when it's calm and quiet, you're going to get ticketed because you're out there by yourself. So the world has this idea, well, God can't judge all of us. Yes, actually, he can. He did 4,500 years ago. He destroyed everything that breathed air in Noah's flood. With the exception of Noah, his family, and the animals God brought him, every one of them died. Yeah, he can. He can. The only exceptions to that judgment were those who were concealed in the ark. Noah and his family and the animals that God brought to him to keep safe. What was different about Noah and the animals and his family? Nothing. They were concealed. They were hidden. In the future, God is again going to judge all humanity. And again, the only safety will be being concealed, not in a boat, but in Christ. Not in a boat, but in Christ. See, there's no safety in good intentions. There's no safety in numbers. There's no safety in the idea that somebody else told me, so I'm, I'm free of responsibility. There's only safety in Christ. There's no safety in numbers. Uh, we, we think as people that we like possibilities rather than certainties. So there are people who will talk about if someone dies, not when. I had a, a colleague one time who said, well, you know, if we die, it's like, what do you mean if? There's going to be one tiny generation of people 
in my view of scripture, who are caught up and transformed instantly. The rest of us go to the grave. But temptation and sin are inevitable. So stumbling blocks are inevitable, Jesus says. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. The monastic movement in the the 3rd and 4th centuries wanted to leave the world behind. Let's go to the desert. Let's go live in caves. Let's go live by ourselves. We'll leave the world behind. As Sinclair Ferguson puts it, many of them discovered that the the desert is also territory the devil occupies. Because we carry the seeds of our own destruction within our fallen nature, running to a different place doesn't help. Not at all. Before Adam sinned, there was one source of temptation. It was external. It was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. After Adam's sin, everything became a source of temptation. Everything. And we no longer need an external source of temptation. James 1.14 says each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So this is a hard truth, but it's true. If the Lord snatched you up right now as you are and took you to heaven right now, what you would see in heaven would be opportunities and temptations to sin that you cannot possibly imagine here. Because the issue is not your circumstance and the issue is not your location. The issue is your nature. That's what it means to be a sinner. Uh, Until that change of nature takes place, temptation and sin are inevitable. And Jesus says, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Nevertheless, woe to that man through whom those stumbling blocks come. Uh, Even though our sin nature makes temptation inevitable, there's a specific warning to the man through whom a a stumbling block comes. Now, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't get to escape guilt because somebody else tempted us. But there are those who love to entice others into sin. So Proverbs 1, the writer warns his son, My son, if truly when sinners entice you, don't be willing. Don't listen to them. He goes on in verse 18 to say they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. The people who are out there trying to push you into joining them into into sin are just adding to their own condemnation. Psalm 4 makes this statement. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and gives birth to falsehood. He has dug a pit and has hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he has made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own skull. So there are people who seek to get others to join them in their sin, and all they do is add to their own condemnation. That's all they achieve. Cain mockingly asked God, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, yes, you are. We're supposed to love. We understand that. One aspect of love is protecting others from the sin that leads to condemnation. God showed that love to Cain when he warned him, sin is crouching at the door. And it desires you, but you must master it. That's a warning that comes from love. In the 1960s, we had the the so-called sexual revolution. And that revolution took love as its byword. All you need is love, John Lennon sang. And then he committed adultery, divorced his wife, and abandoned his first child. 
because all you need is love. You don't need anything else, right? 1967 was called the Summer of Love. It led to the murders of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. It led to followers of Charles Manson slaughtering eight people. That was the, the love time, love and peace. And it ended with utter devastation. In our time, we hear love is love, which really means sex is sex. We're told you can't help who you love. What that really means is you can't help who or what you're sexually attracted to. None of this is love. It's the opposite. It's hatred. It's contempt for God and it's contempt for self. It's hatred that urges people to commit sexual perversion. It's hatred that urges people to mutilate their bodies and is actively calling for the mutilation of children as well. I found a a few verses in Job that just seems to describe so many people in our time. They send forth their little ones like the flock, and their children skip about. They lift up the tambourine and harp and are glad at the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity, and suddenly they go down to Sheol. We've got medical professionals and psychologists and doctors and lawyers telling us that Little children should be mutilated physically. And this is the result. We're sending them out. They're just having such a good time. See how much fun they're having? They dress up the little boy as a girl and put him in a drag show. It's bad enough to entice another adult to sin, but to take a child who doesn't at that time know any better and urge them is worthy of Terrible condemnation. So what are we to do then? Verse 7 is pretty hard. What are we to do then? How are we to live? Jesus gives us an unthinkable answer. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. Try to imagine the gasp from his disciples when he said that. The three things that we need to understand about this. First of all, nobody has ever taught that Jesus meant for us to literally maim ourselves. At no time has the church ever understood or taught that the answer to sin is self-mutilation. I can find no evidence in church history that even splinter groups did this. Now, you're going to find the, the, the occasional person in every generation who would do something like this, but it's, that's not a sign of biblical devotion. It's a sign of mental illness. Second, the first point is not good news. That Jesus doesn't mean us to amputate our body parts to avoid sin is not good news. Because it's not our hands, feet, and our eyes that cause us to sin. Sin relies lies within our mortal flesh, within our natures. It would be awful but simple to just hack off a finger and be done with sin. But because sin infects every cell, we are helpless to change ourselves. There's nothing we can do. If we can't control ourselves even by hacking off body parts, 
what hope do we have of simply saying, well, I won't do that anymore. I'm going to exercise my will. I'm going to claim victory over sin. Good luck with that. You might as well hack off a leg. It'll be just as successful. Because it's within our nature. Because sin lies within our mortal flesh, the only thing that will bring it to an end is death. And there's kind of a problem with that. Because death is inconvenient. It puts an end to sin, but then it leaves us in a position where we're no longer able to enjoy being free from sin. So what we need is a way to die and live at the same time. That's what we need. An end, a way to put an end to our mortal flesh without putting an end to ourselves. That leads to the third point. Jesus is telling us this to drive home our helplessness so that we would call upon God for salvation. And God's answer is to put us to death with his son and to cause us to live in him. Romans chapter 6 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? It's not water baptism, by the way. That's regeneration and the work of the Spirit. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So the answer is Christ. To hate sin like we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Which is only something we can learn to do piecemeal, a bit at a time. Because we so frequently don't even recognize it within ourselves. Part of the answer is to repeat Paul's cry from Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And with that confession, then we must look to Jesus Christ crucified. We must look to his cross where the wrath of God toward us was diverted onto the shoulders of his son. We should look to the cross of Christ where Jesus suffered and died to obtain our forgiveness so that we could truly sing what we just sang. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And then we must look to Jesus resurrected. That's where some fail. They look to the cross but they fail to look to the resurrection. They fail to look to the empty tomb. Jesus, it says in Romans 4.25, was delivered over on account of our transgressions and raised on account of our justification. It's the same wording. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because you and I are sinners under the wrath of God. And that wrath was so perfect and complete that only God the Son could bear it. Why was Jesus raised from the dead? Because God fully accepted his work on the behalf of his people. 
do you understand this? I, I, th- th- there are these frustrations that I, I have at times as a teacher, as a pastor. And if I knew how I would go to e- come to each one of you and I would make you feel the weight and the enormity of these words. That Jesus died on the cross because we deserve nothing but death. Jesus was raised from the dead because by his cross we are perfectly, finally, unchangeably justified. That's why Jesus on the cross says, it is finished, not it is begun. If Jesus meant for the sacraments to actually do something, he would have said, it is begun. If he had meant for baptism to remove something or to alter something or to change something or to change our nature or to change our standing before God, he would not have said, it is finished. He would have said, I have begun it, now you finish it. If the Lord's table was meant to accomplish something different within our lives, to bring about some spiritual transformation, Jesus would not have said, it is finished. He would have said, I have begun it, now you finish it. And instead, he says, it is finished. We don't partake of the Lord's table to receive something new or to renew anything. We partake of the Lord's table to remember that 2,000 years ago, the atonement of our souls was perfectly and once for all achieved by Jesus on his cross. 